This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Name of the study, Effects of Nutrient Fertility on Growth and Alkaloidal Content in Mitrogyna Speciosa, Kratom. And this is the Christopher McCurdy team down at University of Florida who've done a lot of Kratom studies. And they got the uh, NIDA grant money a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if the study is from that, but... Um, so this is unlike one we've done before. They're actually growing kratom trees, and they are testing it for alkaloidal content. It says, uh, 68 kratom trees were vegetatively propagated from a single mother stock to reduce genetic variability and subjected to four varier... Varying fertilizer application rates. Leaves were analyzed for chlorophyll concentration, biomass, alkaloidal content to understand the physiological response of the plant. So, Indeed, yeah. So the first study that we've looked at, I think the first study that I'm aware of is published that looks at uh, the various um, influences of the, the cultivation environment on the alkaloid content in kratom. Um, yeah. so it could be a particular just to anybody who... Uh, is growing kratom and they want to know what the ideal sort of nutrient range is or not is, or, or maybe where they don't get that for, informed too much at all. But I, I thought there were some interesting takeaways overall. So they basically use, they use Scott's fertilizer at four. They use the same fertilizer at four different levels. Um, uh, 15, 19, Zero. 12, if you want to know the NPK. Well, oh yeah. 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 So the, the NPK, what was the NPK? Uh, fifteen nine twelve. That's and then, uh, a Scott's fertilizer. And the different it, groups. So essentially, of these uh, sixty-eight trees, they were in eleven point four liter containers, and they were given four different nutrient treatment groups. So zero nutrient, zero grams of nutrient, forty-six grams, seventy-four grams, and ninety-six grams of nutrients. Yeah. Um, it ends up being somewhere between like given the size of the container it ends up being somewhere like around six and a half and eight and a half grams per liter of the of the cultivation container yeah and they're watered a lot uh but kratom grows in kind of swampy areas they're one of their main problems was that there's not a lot about kratom production uh anywhere in any kind of literature so they kind of just had to experiment a little bit mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And they used uh, all plants were grown under natural daylight, irrigated twice a day with approximately two, yeah, two liters of water twice a day, which I th- sounds like a lot. Um, greenhouse heaters and fans were controlled by an environmental control system. So, had had you ever done anything like this with uh, cannabis? I know you studied it. Yeah, a lot. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. We did just this, and it's essentially you know, the first steps towards uh, optimizing growth for commercial environments. Um, 
And, you know, so in the, in the scheme of things, they're really just looking at growing inside of a, a controlled environment and, and only modifying the nutrient content to see if, to just get a, a very broad indicator of whether or not you can increase the alkaloids um, based on the, based on the total amount of nutrients. So it's a little bit different in cannabis because we have some baseline information about its cultivation. So you, whether you're looking at you know, light, temperature, humidity, nutrient content, or any sort other sort of additives. There's a little, there's much more sort of laid down in a foundation for cannabis, but you know, you need studies like this to at least get the ball rolling for Kratom. Yeah. The thing about alkaloids uh, in Kratom is, or in any plant is they serve a different function for the plant other than just to make us feel good. Even says, although alkaloids can serve to benefit human health, their primary purpose for being produced by plants is to support important ecological functions sets such as defensive pests and disease. I think maybe uh, tobacco I've heard that with, where the nicotine actually kills uh, aphids or flea beetles or some kind of pest that would otherwise mm -hmm. eat the plant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So these these plants aren't biosynthesizing these compounds in order for our enjoyment. And, and at least we can't force them to until we understand this. And, and yeah. I think one of the one of the elements that was somewhat missing from this uh, paper was the direct link between like input nutrients and biosynthesis of the alkaloids. It wasn't like well, we know that in the biosynthesis pathway, way upstream, there's precursor A. And precursor A is derived from nutrient set, you know, A2. And so by adding more of these, we should push the biosynthesis over the edge. I don't think that that pathway, that biosynthesis pathway, is that fully described. Um, so it, it was something that was somewhat missing from here, but I just, I don't think that we know that yet. And making a bigger connection between nutrient concentration and alkaloid content would be the first step in sort of understanding those physiological pathways, those biosynthesis pathways. Is that kind of where testing uh, the amount of chlorophyll comes in? Because I guess that would measure the health of the plant against um, uh, the amount of alkaloids in it. Is that, is that, is that the idea it there? Is, I think it is. Yeah. So, I mean, the more chlorophyll that were the more chlorophyll activity that would be in the plant, the idea would be that like, you know, the machinery, the biosynthesis machinery would be um, engaged to a higher degree or higher rate. I think the point in, in this paper was really, I mean, so they looked at, they're looking at the biomass and they're looking at, you know, tree height, width, trunk growth. So the overall biomass of the plants as a function of uh, the nutrient content, uh, the chlorophyll, alkaloid content, uh, and then they, um, they, they confirmed all those. Like, so essentially they did an extraction procedure that was an ethanol wash where things were sonicated and then evaporated. And then they quantified them with an HPLC. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I necessarily saw a direct correlation between chlorophyll and alkaloid content other than just that if there's more plant mass and more plant activity, um, you know, that would indicate maybe potentially some greater concentrations um, uh, of the alkaloids. But that's not what they ended up finding. Yeah, I mean, I know they definitely, uh, it's like the more fertilizer they used, the bigger the plant was and the more actual leaf material they had, which is kind of, you know, you'd think that. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and by default, therefore, that they had this more alkaloid content. So yeah. there was a, 
more fertilizer equals more biomass. Fertilizer to alkaloid relationship was not linear. It was highly variable. So what was interesting is that fertilizer rate had little influence on the concentration uh, of metragenine. They looked at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or is it eight, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, yeah, eight of the different alkaloids. And basically four of the alkaloids had no change between high and low fertilizer, and that included metragenine. So there was really no, if we increase the fertilizer, we increase the metragenine content. They found no change there. Two alkaloids where there was high fertilizer, high alkaloid, and two alkaloids where there was low fertilizer, low alkaloid, which was, was pretty interesting in the scheme of things, especially if you're trying to develop some sort of commercial profile of, of kratom alkaloids. 7-hydroxymetragenine was below the lower limit of quantification in all samples throughout the study. Mitragenine was detected in 43% of the sample leaves, but was below the lower limit of quantification at the beginning of the experiment and was not influenced by fertilization. That's what we were just talking about. And they mm -hmm. also said somewhere else that the amounts of mitragyny were lower than in commercial samples. So that kind of, like what I've heard with uh, Josh, uh, Kratom Science Josh told me was that he was told that it takes several years to really develop the alkaloids, kind of like, uh, kind of like, wine grapes take a few years to grow before the mm -hmm. before they're good enough to make wine out of and um he's to take seven up to seven eight years and you basically need to stress the plant for it to produce uh by picking leaves in low water supposedly picking the leaves will make it produce more as a defense mechanism to prevent the leaves from being eaten so it's kind of like uh I don't know how long this experiment was. It seemed like it only went over uh, the course of a season until they got full-grown plants, and it might Yeah, have... so there was 12 weeks, 87 days total, once they were planted in that larger, um, the larger 11.4 liter pot. Okay. Um, and, and you're right, you know, that did the comparison to the concentrations of commercial. So I looked into that a little bit more. So it says... Metragenine not influenced by nutrient concentrations. And also the studies, this study's plants, metragenine levels were four to five fold lower than those determined in commercial products. So commercial products would measure at like one to 6% metragenine, you know, per weight. Yeah. Whereas this study, it didn't even get, you know, half of that. It was, it was half a percent, not even half a percent. Yeah. Um, and other studies, they mentioned citing like 12 to 66% uh, of the weight of leaves was metragenine um, of trees collected in Malaysia and Thailand. And I have heard that as well, that um, the age of the tree, and especially like being over two to three years old, uh, is really when the alkaloid content starts to, to kick in and it's in a significant way where you're seeing uh, you know, these one to 6% metragenine. Um, so it, they, they, it was a relatively short lifespan and they were brand new plants from the beginning. It's, you know, it would be interesting. And I hope that this group has plants that are continuing to grow from this original study so yeah. they can start looking at production. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I mean, I don't, I don't see why they wouldn't, um, if they already have the greenhouse set up unless they need it for something right. else, but yeah, yeah. Hopefully, uh, it, it turns into a more long-term thing. But what did it say about the alkaloids here? Um, it said in general, fertilization did not affect 
the average pananthine. <laughs> oh man, speciosilantine, mitrophylline, uh-huh. and <laughs> corynoxine concentration for per dry leaf mass. And uh, but uh, if we decide to do that um, other uh, alkaloid paper next time, I'll work on the pronunciation of all of these. <laughs> <laughs> But it said uh, that that wasn't affected by fertilizer, th- those particular alkaloids. Um, it says, given no consistent temporal trends were observed for alkaloids, alkaloids quantified in this study, data was pulled together to increase the statistical power for analysis of overall alkaloidal trends. What does that mean exactly? So you're asking what they pulled together, how they actually pulled that together? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Uh, I think essentially what they did was they um, pulled together the days. So in Table One, we have this, you know, week zero, week two, week three, week four, week five, all the way up to week twelve. And I think essentially what they're saying is that they pulled together uh, all of those, all the entire temporal. They collapsed it into then Table Two, just the average alkaline concentration. And then that's where we got that four alkaloids, there was no change between the high and low fertilizer treatments. There were two, uh, the M and the C, that were high fertilizer, higher alkaloids, and then the ISO and the corthonoxanine were lower. So lower fertilizer, higher alkaloids. And you can sort of see that um, play out in the data where um, there are higher numbers. The first four are essentially the same between control, low, medium, and high. Uh, the, the, the two after that are higher as we go down. And then uh, the, the last ones are higher as we stay up at the top. It like gets smaller as we go down. So that's what they mean by they pooled together. They didn't necessarily see a temporal characteristic. A number of the alkaloids were below the limit of quantification all the way up through at least week six. Like Before that, they couldn't even really detect metragenine. Um, once we got to that, that six week and beyond, they started detecting a, a, you know, a detectable, a quantifiable amount of metragenine, but it was still, you know, pretty, pretty low relative to, to what's reported in the, in the commercial samples. And they had, uh, some other things in the discussion to say about metragenine, um, a uh, cross-section survey of Malaysian kratom users indicated that medical efficacy of kratom tea consumption was maximized when consumed within 24 hours of brewing. Um, effectiveness of kratom tea was reported to decrease 48 to 72 hours. However, laboratory now- analysis of the kratom tea they're talking about in this study they're referring to um, found no difference in mitragenine concentrations. So results over suggest, that time, yeah, over uh, seventy-two hour, forty-eight to seventy-two hours after brewing, but they said the effects weren't as good, and it says um, thus results suggest changes in compounds other than mitragenine might play a much more significant role in reported medical effectiveness of kratom. Um, that and that part's real interesting because essentially yeah. what they're describing is an entourage effect. To say that just the amount of metragenine doesn't necessarily result in reported human effects. And that uh, the, if the level of metragenine is staying constant, but over these 72 hours, some other 
smaller, less known alkaloids are degrading or changing their concentrations, that can be the cause or the result of why people are reporting them differently. Like it's metragenine plus three other alkaloids in some sort of entourage effect. That's very interesting. Yeah. And they even said a related study examining mitragenine presence in leaves collected in the Philippines only detected it in 38% of collected samples. Get to look at that study because I don't know if people were consuming the ones the ones without mitragenine and reporting effects, but that was pretty interesting in the Philippines. So, um, just to, to I wrote up a summary here just of the um, if if you were to be growing kratom trees and you wanted to know based on this research data what would be the the best amount of nutrients for your um, for your plant. Uh, basically, because the more fertilizer equaled more plant biomass, and then essentially, therefore, the overall alkaloid content, um, they you can you can recommend that if you have it's between a, a seventy-five and hundred grams of nutrients per eleven point four liter pot, or six and a half to eight and a half grams per liter of whatever pot that you're growing in, um, and what that achieves is not necessarily a higher alkaloid content but higher plant biomass. And, and they noticed a significant difference between no nutrients and then nutrients in terms of overall plant biomass. Yeah. But then between the low, medium, and high nutrient schedules, there was no significant difference in that plant biomass. So not using uh, nutrients is not a good idea. Using uh, a reasonable, you know, sort of mid-range amount of nutrients is what is what the target is, essentially. You don't need to go too high. You don't need to go too low. But using them definitely makes a difference overall. And also, I mean, they were growing I, – what I thought was funny is they were in, they're in Florida, and they were growing these in heated greenhouses too. So I guess depending on what time of year they were doing it, maybe they had to start in the winter. I, I mean, I've talked to a guy on this podcast that actually grows them, and he, he's in Ohio, and he keeps them outside in the summer, and he just brings them in and puts them under probably fluorescence in the winter. So mm-hmm. I don't think it necessarily has to be uh, has to be a tropical environment in order to grow them, but I I don't oh, think, no, yeah, I, I don't think you could keep them out in the winter though. Yeah, I mean, unless you're in Florida or Texas, you know, you see a bunch of guys on Reddit in Florida and Texas who who get the benefit of keeping them outside all the time, maybe even putting them in the ground out there, yeah. which I think is good, you know, in relation to the longevity, right? So keeping them for years. Yeah. Um, in order to get that alkaloid content up, but yeah, you can certainly you, know, you can certainly recreate the 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 greenhouse environment. I think that they were around seventy four degrees Fahrenheit for uh, for our uh, non metric audience, um, and you know the the daily light integral that they had was pretty um, pretty normal. Like there wasn't an exorbitant amount of light needed. Like generally in cannabis cultivation, that the amount of light will you know, be one and a half to two times the daily light integral for, for northern normal plant cultivation. They're trying to increase that light. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, it can certainly be done. I think the other, the other cool angle or element of this was that they, they very clearly laid out their alkylate extraction and, um, you know, it doesn't require any really sophisticated technology. So they, they just took their leaf and ground it up. So then they just, you know, they powdered it up into, to, 
um, the powder, like, or like you could get a powder from a, a smoke shop. They um, put that into the ethanol, the 190 proof ethanol, and then place that into a sonicator. A sonicator is like essentially a water bath that you would clean jewelry in, but it just is, huh. it vibrates very quickly. Yeah. So after that, they, um, they separated them out. They separated the ethanol and they separated the layers. They used a rotary evaporator. You wouldn't necessarily need one of those. Um, but they did three washes with this ethanol. And then at that point, they had essentially a concentrated alkaloid uh, solution that they were able to uh, analyze with the, the HPLC technology. So, you know, it's just a regular ethanol wash. It's pretty well described um, that could be done. You know, don't necessarily need lab expensive laboratory equipment to get it done. See, I'm wondering why they didn't uh, maybe try to get information on production practices, like maybe from Indonesian farmers. And it even said Kratom production practices are largely undocumented and thus confound application of established management practice that aim to maximize plant growth and alkaloid synthesis. Um, information on relationships between horticultural practices and plant forms is limited, but crucial to support development of newly emerging Kratom production industry. So essentially, we're kind of like in the dirt weed, uh, dark ages of Kratom production. You, you get good stuff from Thailand. That's, that, that's how it used to be with cannabis. Uh, the commercial production has been coming from leaves that are essentially just growing wild. Yeah. I mean, there are now there are farms over um, in these countries where like the trees will be lined up in rows, right? So it, yeah. like that's the extent of the commercial production that they're just old established existing trees that they pull from. And I mean, I've seen pictures of some of these trees where they're 30, 40, 50 feet tall. Like they're yeah. just enormous. Um, so I would say that like really commercial production uh, specifically for the purpose of getting raw material for commercial creating products is, is literally just like you're saying at the very beginning. Um, and before there are no like best management practices because before now, they were just grown in the wild. And it it seems to be, uh, you know, they don't, they probably don't even use a lot of fertilizer or any uh, inputs or anything like that. Just right. seems like yep. uh, just from the YouTube videos and stuff, so I, stuff I watched, it's, they're basically collecting it. And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. and I'm, I mean, there's farms with rows of trees and stuff, but yeah, they're basically uh, going out, collecting the leaves and drying them out. And, and these plants are, you know, years old. We, we, we count their, their age in, in years, not in, in weeks, which they did, uh, they did in this study. And, you know, they had yeah. to start somewhere. Mm. Um, but I think, <clears throat> I think you're right. You know, hopefully we can assume that the group in Florida has this greenhouse going and they're going to keep it going. Um, and why not do something on the time scale of weeks just to see. And now they, now they essentially know too where the optimal, should they treat with nutrients? Yes or no? Yes. And they have a, a, an optimal range to increase biomass and plant health. So hopefully now they can continue that um, over time. And then, you know, what we're going to see, like in cannabis, you would add things like simple sugars um, and other other additives. I don't want to say necessarily nutrients because it's not the the MPK uh, sort of um, set of of elements or um, nutrients or minerals that we're looking for. It's beyond that. So like simple sugars or carbohydrates or some. Is there other elements and additive things that can be added to the the soil amendments, if you will, that will then actually modify this alkaloid uh, content or um, what happens as a plant goes from like 
weeks to months to years old to where it starts switching and really kicking in this production of the alkaloid content to where it's, you know, between one to 10% or so per, per leaf uh, mass. I don't think we know that yet. And so this, this type of re line of research uh, done by the group down in Florida is really the first to, to peer into it in any sort of empirical way. It's yeah. one thing to sort of pull the leaves off the plant and brew a tea and say, oh, it's getting there, right? And, and we <laughs> humans have the ability to detect that. The, those thresholds are observable and, and noticeable to us, but it doesn't, it's, it doesn't put a, you know, a hard quantification on the number. So you know, it would just be kind of weird if you're, if you're looking at it, what, 52 weeks in a year, let's say you get to like week 75 and all of a sudden the alkaloid, metragenine alkaloid content goes from less than a 1% to 7% in one week. Like what happened during that week? That's really what we want to understand yeah. if we're going to try to grow, grow for commercial purposes. Yeah. Um, and it also said something about uh, the kratom trees utilized in the study were Wait, either kratom trees utilized in the study were likely of a different genotype than those used as a source for commercial kratom products or another key environmental factor responsible for mitragyny and other alkaloids was not present in our study. So what, what is that about genotype? Would that be like the equivalent of uh, like hemp used for fiber to, uh, you know, cannabis? That would be smoking. that would be genotypical, but I, I yeah. think you know really when you're looking at the different strains. So what makes a blue dream different from uh, uh, a tangy is is not really entirely genetic. I mean, there's some genetic material there, but the, it's not. You can't distinguish them as different species. Although I okay. actually just heard about a study uh, out of Canada that this guy's been looking at cannabis genotypes for like decades now. And he finally has just produced a test that can tell whether or not a plant in its infancy stage is going to produce more CBD versus THC. So that'd be between hemp and between, you know, cannabis or medical yeah. cannabis. Um, but so in this study, they say plant cuttings were taken from a single mother stock obtained from a private plant producer to reduce potential plant genetic diversity among replicants. And so, it's sort of um, pros and cons to that. Like, of course, they would want to uh, keep all the plants and the genetic stock of the plants the same because really what they're looking at is a difference in nutrient content. Mm -hmm. If there was genetic variability in there, you'd be, you'd, it would be confounding variable because the influence of genetics with nutrients would come into play. Yeah. Um, but by just saying that it's a private plant producer um, and not really getting into the sort of provenance or history of where those genetics came from, it's hard to say whether we're running into an issue where like, oh, well, in Thailand and, and Malaysia, where they have these higher alkali content trees, it's probably a different strain or a different genetic type. We don't know that. And it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like the, the authors of the study uh, were concerned. I feel like they would mention that to say like, this came from a stock that originated in Malaysia, but has been grown in the U.S. in Florida for X amount of years. So there's really not a lot of details on, on the provenance there to lay yeah. things out. But, you know, they had to they had to have that genetics um, similarity across the board. They could redo this study almost exactly the same and just use different genetics rather than modifying the nutrients. And then, you know, then we could see. But I don't know what I don't you know, I don't know what sort of access they had to with this private plant producer. Um, and what sort of uh, different varieties or genotypes they may have. 
without the without the providence there like it certainly wasn't uh a commercial kratom farm in florida that's like getting ready to pump all this stuff out at least or maybe it was i don't know but i don't think so i think it was more of a a, a hobbyist type thing that's now you know maybe gearing up or pointing towards commercialization this is just a guess but it seems like it, it would have to be grown in in somewhere like florida um, I mean, I guess they could be greenhouse grown, but it seems like if, th- if the trees have to be a certain age, then they have to be a certain height and, uh, you'd have to get some pretty high greenhouses to grow them in, but I, I, you could probably train them to right. be wider than rather than higher. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be, you know, age is not limited by height. You could definitely train it and like keep them wide. You could bonsai the thing and yeah, you, yeah. Know, you could uh, pretty old and not a lot of space. So I, you know, I would be surprised if this group is not uh, on the path to doing that. We'll just have to keep, you know, as with, as with almost all Kratom studies, this one was published in December of 2020. So, you know, less than a month old. Um, and we try to, we try to find the papers that are coming hot right off the presses. So we're, we're keeping everybody at the cutting edge, but you know, this is, this is where we're at. And this is as far as I'm aware of the first empirical paper that looked at these, um, growing conditions as it relates to alcohol like content especially uh on like the volatile nature of uh how, how these things are imported from indonesia there's you know an fda import alert uh indonesia's government keeps talking about outlawing it but then in thailand they just legalize it for medicinal purposes and i think um they just completely legalized it this year, but it seems to be going slow as to how that's going to pan out and whether there's going to be a commercial source from there. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and another thing is you have to get the plants to grow it. It's, it's like really impossible to grow from seed because uh, I, I you know, like they germinate uh, at a very low rate. I've heard that. That's another. Uh, I haven't. I haven't heard about anyone starting them from seed. Yeah. You know, and I just did a Google search for American kratom farm, and really, there's there's nothing that immediately jumps out. There's there's stuff from the the AKA, but it's more about good manufacturing practices, less yeah. about um, the U.S. You know, I think I've heard of some uh, some groups over in Arizona too. So I just. I would be surprised given the um, risk potential of like shutting down import of raw kratom that there aren't at least one or two groups in the U.S. that are getting a farm ready um, just in case that were to happen. Yeah, really. Yeah. I mean, it would be be a definitely a good thing to do if you're a farmer and <laughs> you can figure out from the not very much information how to do it. <laughs> And, you know, really at this point, it seems like you're on the right track if you get the plants in the ground and that's it. You just got to keep them alive for yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just get them in the ground. Test them and see what get happens. Get them in the ground, keep them alive. Yeah. And hopefully it doesn't snow or rain. <laughs> well, yeah. Or, or freezing rain. You know, I, I think the, the other interesting thing to sort of walk away with from this paper with is this the notion that we talked about earlier of the entourage effect and that – yeah. Um, often we'll get a lot of questions sent in to us about, uh, you know, we're sick of hearing about metragenine and 7-hydroxymetragenine. Tell us about the other ones. Um, and there have been little study on like, uh, you know, highly concentrated um, other alkaloids, so spin- spinisogenine, the one that starts with a S. Yeah. Um, 
it's hard to get that in like high, high enough concentrations to where you could have a human just take that and see how that works out. What they're saying though, is that the metragenine content alone doesn't seem to affect um, the reported effects in humans. So with the T there. And so this notion that they're working together in concert and there's some sort of entourage effect is I think pretty compelling. Um, and as we elucidate that more, you know, maybe it's, it's that like sort of the sociability and antidepressant effects are metragenine plus alkaloid one and two. And the pain relieving is like metragenine plus three and four in different concentrations. And, and that would sort of be like where you hear in cannabis, people trying to make, you know, certain ratios of cannabinoids to treat certain disease subsets or, or, or abnormalities. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're heading that way in Kratom. And if we get another plant that has this entourage effect, it would be pretty interesting um, to see the similarities and overlap between the cannabis and Kratom. My tragenine alone might not even be a good uh, synthesized or good, a good target, uh, right? Yeah, right. good medicine. Because <clears throat> I don't, I think even even extracts aren't my tragenine alone extracts. When you buy them from a company, they're they're alkaloid extracts. So you're, you still got the mm-hmm. alkaloids working together. There are somewhere it'll say you know um, pure metragenine isolate. And based on this notion that there could be an entourage effect, those isolates aren't necessarily the goal. You want to have a, you want to have an alkaloid content that's a mix of all, all of these alkaloids, not just one. So if you know anything about kratom cultivation and alkaloids or any of the topics we covered, if we didn't cover them enough, we got something wrong, leave us a comment. Uh, check us out on Twitter at Kratom Science or at Jay Cachet. Uh, Dr. John can also be found on ccvresearch.com. The song is called Moonrunner. The band is Captain Big Wheel. The Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for kratomscience.com. Take care. <laughs>